What's up, everyone? Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And this week, we are back and high kicking higher than ever with The Karate Kid. And this is our prelude to our big live show. So are you excited? Hell yeah, I'm excited, dude. Karate Kid is a classic with a K. Um, it is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> with the throw that out there. <laughs> Love it. That's but our no, hell yeah. Karate Kid is a great movie. One of the best of our childhoods. So I'm so looking forward to this live event. Yeah, it is such a staple of our childhood. We bring it up all the time. And that's what this podcast is. And I was watching it. And there's so many small moments in it that were so indelible. And I remembered them. I remember them way more than I thought I would. I hadn't seen this in I probably since at your house, I'm guessing get probably nine or 10. Oh, dude, we used, I, used, I used to have the, the Daniel like LaRusso, like little toy with like the karate kick action and uh, the mean sensei who was like the villain toy. And he was like, he, he was just the, the coolest toy to have. I mean, these, my karate kid was like, you said, a big part of our childhood, a big part of like the sleepover quintessential movies, like night movie night viewing. Right, popcorn, ice cream, karate kid, uh, the ensuing injuries after we try to do the crane kicks on each other, you know, like like classic, classic, classic 90s childhood. So I love watching this movie and it's gonna be a great game to check it out in theaters uh with a group of people again. Completely agree. And what's fun is is that you know, Star Wars is was huge from the 80s, for example, and late 70s. Um, then there's the Raiders movies and so forth. But I feel like the karate kid was one that truly lasted into the 90s and it felt like really of the 90s, and it isn't. There weren't very many movies that were like that, that were like those, as you said, I like that, the, the Slumber Party movies that were from the 80s. Uh, what other Slumber Party movies uh, were your favorites as a kid? Oh, I got to say the, the um, not the pressers, but the subsequent follow-up to um, Karate Kid for our generation would be Three Ninjas. Three Ninjas for me is the ultimate sleepover movie. It's, you know, three kids, for those who don't know, it, it's Home Alone, essentially, with Kung Fu. And brothers. So you got the cool teamwork thing, right? So so any like little boy hanging out with their friends, wanting to do kung fu at that time, who's into like you know, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, karate kid at that time. Three ninjas hit the buttons, dude. That was like, remember how many times did we go see it in theaters? That was one of those ones I think we saw like two or three times in theaters where we had to beg our parents, like, we want to see three ninjas, three ninjas. Like, we don't want to see three ninjas again. We already know they beat up the stoner robbers, but that was the one that was like sleepover watch, and like you said, yeah, you, you want to play three ninjas essentially. What about you, man? What's one of your favorite uh, classic sleepover films? Dude, Three Ninjas on the top of my list. That's so funny. With the Rocky Loves Emily quote. Rocky <laughs> that was just Emily. A, yeah. Rocky, Rocky Loves, loves Emily. Emily. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, too, because that's, like, considered by so many, like, as, like, the poor man's home alone, right? Whereas, like, oh. I think of an equivalent of, like, Mac and Me I loved as a kid. Uh-huh. Like, our family loved it. We owned Mac and Me and literally watched it, like, twice a year. I'm like, I think my mom put it on every time she really made mac and cheese for us, even though like it's really a That's McDonald's awesome. commercial. We always affiliate it with mac and cheese, which is super funny. Yeah. Three Ninjas was a staple and it was, you know. Wait, I just got to say, Three Ninjas had one of the best villain names ever. I'm always going to remember it. Snyder. Snyder. <laughs> like is that's one of the best names of a villain. Like it just sees evil. But sorry, I had to cut you off there. No, no. Uh, worth it. Worth it. I also love the fact that it has like a babysitter who gets put in the closet, right? That's such a staple of the 90s, right? We had so uh-huh. many babysitters who had the shit end of the stick in that era. Was- They're always elderly and they have like the uh, like 
hairnet slash shower cap thing always like they just show up to work like they woke up back in the 90s that's that's what you call like that was that's what i guess the babysitter agency but yeah quintessential like staple of the 90s is the the authority figure who gets like abducted right and then you know quote unquote saved at the end but yeah i, I love the the dynamics of that movie yeah no that's our number one slumber party movie of all time which is so funny because most people probably haven't even heard of it <laughs> so so check out three ninjas um and buy a bunch of nestle's crunch and what other candy should they buy oh what else is tum 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 if i remember eats jelly beans if i remember right yeah jelly beans in fact jelly beans become a motif and a tool in that movie so get some jelly beans and keep an eye out for them when you're first going to watch it tum tum is my favorite character too in that you always have to have the kid who's just like constantly eating candy too in oh, the yeah. 90s and in sports movies i'd say the other one i remember always watching from the 80s like an 80s film that we'd watch in the 90s at slum parties was ferris bueller's day off that was a classic mm-hmm. always um actually pro- groundhog's day do you remember that one that was another one sounds weird for like little kids to watch that was another one i used to, we used to watch at slumber parties from the 80s and revenge of the nerds that was the uh, one if you, the one you don't want your parents to know you're watching but that's the one if little boys just sneak away to to watch revenge of the nerds before before this was before american pie came out though uh but that is definitely one i associate with slumber parties revenge of the nerds i would say that was our porkies <laughs> with revenge of the nerds <laughs> great, great comparison <laughs> <laughs> until American Pie came out when we were like young teenagers. And then that mm-hmm. was our in-theater porkies of our generation, right? With Nadia sure. and sneaking in and all that fun shenanigans. So we already have set the scene of like when we first watched it, right? But this film came out on June 22nd, 1984. It came out into a loaded box office. I was reading people comparing it to 1939 and 1999 in terms of like three huge years in the mm. box office, right? We've already talked about 99 a, a bit on our, our, our one of our episodes we've done before. I think it was probably any given Sunday. I think that's a 99 film. And yeah. we got deep into the, the weeds of that year. So, I mean, it just comes Great. out into a fire, fire hot box office. We have everything from Revenge of the Nerds, also an 84 movie, that's fun. <laughs> we have The Never Ending Story. We have Princess Purple Rain. We have 16 Candles. We have one of the great baseball flicks of all time in The Natural. We have Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We have The Last Starfighter, Red Dawn, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. It's a great one. People, if you haven't seen it, check it out. That's just getting started. Like later in the year, we get Nightmare on Elm Street, Footloose, The Terminator, Beverly Hills Cop, Amadeus, This is Spinal Tap, Repo Man, and even the Coen Brothers' first movie, Blood Simple. So, I mean jam-packed box office for the year and i want to ask you you have you know i don't know with inflation but maybe eleven dollars to spend two tickets 550 each okay what summer movies are you gonna see in june of 1984 man this is like a loaded list it is super loaded it's (laughs) it's so loaded that i forgot probably the biggest three which i got to bring up now throw throw them out there gremlins ghostbusters and once upon a time in oh that's unfair Cause like with this podcast is like established in nostalgia, so like automatically I want to say Ghostbusters first because that is like both the childhood one of my favorite cartoons, one of my favorite movies to watch as a kid. I think I own like three copies of VHS copies of Ghostbusters because I watch it so much. And Ghostbusters two is also one of my favorites. No surprise, those who watch listen to this podcast, I like the sequel as well. But Gremlins though, Gremlins is another staple, like one of my favorite movies year round. 
Halloween, even I consider it a Christmas movie is one of my favorite. Like if people like Die Hard as a Christmas movie, I think Gremlins is my favorite Christmas movie. So I'm gonna say Gremlins. I'm gonna have to pick that over Ghostbusters, I think. Then the other one on here is a tough one for me is Terminator, Nightmare on Elm Street, or Indiana Jones. That's like a toss-up. And then you got Purple Rain in there too. I feel like Purple Rain would be dope. Uh, just as a Prince fan, that's that's another one. Yeah. It's so and then tough. I go with Never Ending Stories, another one when we're talking about like childhood movies. So it's, it, this last one's a really hard toss up one for me, but I'm going to go with, I think I want to go with, with Terminator. Oh, yeah. I saw a spinal tap because I also might want to laugh though. Yeah. This is tough. I'm going to go with Terminator though. I would love to see Terminator like when it first came out. And I do like me some James Cameron. So I'm going to go Terminator. That was like <laughs> Sophie's Choice. That was a hard house one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you not go with Terminator? Right. Unlike Indiana Jones. But I mean, Indiana Jones, Simple of Doom, man, but they got the heart ripping out. They got like short round. They got the brains with the monkey. That's a hard one to like t- turn away from. But yeah, I mean, the whole box office is too loaded. It's it's like one of those years, too, where it like really brings a new flavor. I mean, I feel like this is the 80s. Like, you know, oh. like sometimes the late 80s, if you look at the box office, it's really the 90s. And sometimes like the late 90s are really the early aughts and so forth uh-huh. in our mind, right? Our collective imagination. And vice versa, sometimes 91, 92, and 93 are really the 80s. And like the early aughts are really the 90s as well. Like it works mm-hmm. both ways. But I feel like this is like the heart of the 80s right here. Oh, yeah. um, along with our birth year, 87 has a ton of classics like Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, I think Mac and Me came out that year as well. I'm not sure what year ET came out, but I know like our you know birth year is a huge year for the 80s as well. I would have to say... I'm going to go the different route than you, just because for variety's sake, I'm going to say I would see first Blood Simple, but then that would be like the lamest environment because I feel like no one's going to see the Coen Brothers. Yeah, you might be like the only one in the theater. Yeah, (laughs) which is which is par for the course for me. So that that sounds about right. Um, I'm going to like the the marginal flick on a matinee and i'm seriously the only Monday one morning when people used to talk at the actual water coolers they're talking yeah. about that that cool scene when that dude got his heart ripped down they ate monkey brains and falls like yo guys didn't go go see a new coen brothers movie exactly in my in my very snobbish way um i mean it's just so tough oddly enough i think footloose would be a lot of fun with patrick swayze dancing around in those you know the song i also dude, purple th- rain dude prince is fucking huge like, yes there's a crowd for that one on a friday night People dressed up. I think that would be a blast too. I absolutely love The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. It's like super sci-fi camp. I don't even know how to really explain what genre it is. It's kind of like this story of a physicist, neurosurgeon, rock star, and a test pilot are teaming together to save the world from uh, interdimensional aliens. (laughs) And it's starring Christopher Lloyd, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah. John Lithgow. Yeah, this is one of those completely under the radar gems that I stumbled across about five oh. years ago. And it's it's awesome. It's just over the top garish in its costuming. I, I, I would love to see that. But once again, I feel like I'd be the only person in theaters. I feel like that was a huge bomb in the, mm. the box office. And so like, I feel like both of those that I've picked are terrible because like, I want to see something that's like, lively. Packed that, house one. Yeah, pa- packed house. So I think Beverly Hills Cop, maybe I'm going to go with, you know, Eddie Murphy, just a good Good comedy. Like I've been really loving comedies in theaters lately, seeing the value of them almost above all films. I mean, I get like the value of an action flick writ large on the screen. I get the value of everything, really. You can really make an argument for everything. 
And yes, comedies ostensibly should be like the most translatable on the small screen, right? Because it's just like Mm. more about the dialogue and so forth. But, but there is the one element that's essential for comedy and it's, it's a crowd laughing together, right? It's that collective uh, infectious laughter. And as someone who doesn't naturally laugh very easily, it's really nice to be in a theater where other people are bringing me out of my own shell, making me reevaluate my own cynicism or like my own like frigidity towards Uh. something, you know? Like, you know, even just yesterday with the with the Nick Cage film with Massive Talent, there was a few jokes that like didn't necessarily hit me at first. And then everyone cracked up and I, I smirked. I enjoyed uh-huh. it, you know? So just yeah. that. It's like that, that laugh of- track factor. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of underappreciated because we're talking about comedy. One, I, I almost went with I didn't choose, though, was this is Spinal Tap. And it's because I want to see people like even how was it actually funny um, or did it just go over their heads kind of thing as a mockumentary format? Like what what's like the laugh balance in that one? in that crowd is something I'd be interested in. I'm not necessarily saying they'd be like a ruxious crowd or anything like that, but I feel there'd be a lot of just like question, like what the fuck is this kind of thing going like not as advertised kind of kind of takes. No, I completely agree because I mean, that's one of the most heralded heralded uh, and riotous comedies of all time now. Right. But I feel like that was like at the birth of the mockumentary form. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was Reiner's first mockumentary. But I think it was like his first or second. And mm-hmm. I'm also curious. I think that seems, I haven't looked it up, but I wonder if that film slowly gained traction over time or if it really hit right off the bat. Yeah. I feel like it might be more of a cult fine kind of following thing. Because even me being my age, I came across it more as a Simpsons reference. It's early on, like season three, they go see Spinal Tap live. And there's like a, a riot at the show. It's like, it's all reference to the movie. But as a kid, I didn't get it. I thought it was like really a reference to like a real band. Uh, so, so like you said, it has that like uh, weird cultural aesthetic to it, even in the 90s. And there's like an 80. This is like, that was like less than 10 years, actually, looking at this time period, actually. Showing, what, what, like, getting those who are fans of the Simpsons know, like, how... Um, how deep into the well of pop culture they'll dig, particularly early on between both literature and movies. Yeah, that's those who get that reference is another reason why I'd want to see that one. Is that uh, that one on that episode works so funnily as a Simpsons plot, but if you're a fan of the Spinal Tap, it, it's double the laughs. And another thing about the Spinal Tap one, right, is it's really a satire on the metal bands that were in their heyday at that time, right? Hmm. Um, was it too on the nose for the time? Was it too ahead of the time in seeing? the iconography and the motifs or did it make it even better it reminds me of a the hilarious film never stop playing pop or whatever pop star never stop playing have you seen that one no okay is that like a more recent one kind of a similar style but with pop or yeah that one's a you know andy samberg and his crew okay Uh, oh yeah i haven't seen it but i remember the trailers and all that stuff for that one Um, exactly yeah it's like the Lonely Hearts crew or whatever they're called, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so thanks for pulling on their out their entourage, entourage's name, their their comedic troops name. But yeah, it's the Lonely Hearts group. Um, we have to do the Bash Brothers, by the way. Just put a pin in that. They they have like this hilarious like thirty minute rap video as like the Oakland A's that I've seen like three times. We have to cover that one one time. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's on Netflix too. But no, that one's hilarious as well, and it's very of the time because they're basically mocking. Justin Bieber, I would say, just mm-hmm. or like Justin Timberlake, um, kind of a, a pastiche. 2010s pop stars, by remember type from that time, right? Exactly, yeah. And it's really good. Um, and it was a big hit kind of right away in, in a very niche way, but like it was never going to be a big film. So it was well received right away. I feel like Spinal Tap must have been liked right away, but it only became more on the button with time. I feel like it's such a perfect send up 
of the like narcissism and just like the styles of those music documentaries, right? Like it mm. just really understood the form really well of that genre. And it's like a perfect deconstruction of it. And like, like, like walk hard, right? The music mm. genres have like this very rich tradition of satires that really like deconstruct them quite well. Oh um, yeah. From exactly from shows like Metalocalypse, like just a great examination of not just metal, but all the genres adjacent to it from like punk and Christian rock to rap rock and all that just great like 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 we talk about like like star uh, starship troopers great versions of satire that can be sometimes be overseen but um are, are pretty nuanced though yeah you know and sports has a few you know uh the bash brothers is kind of a spoof of sports stuff we have the puck hogs i just remembered yeah that's right. yeah that's a great one we, we didn't even think of but you're right puck hogs dude for sure fits there so my two films to wrap it up, because I, I mentioned so many, Beverly Hills Cop, I'm going to go see, and Buckaroo Bonsai. Buckaroo okay. Bonsai. So those are my two. Yeah, those are my two. They're weird, but what are your two? Just to wrap it up, because we named like a, a bunch. You're yeah, we actually term- have to name it. I, we kept going back and forth. So mine's going to be Gremlins and Terminator. Perfect. I'm going to go with those two. Awesome. And so- I got to see Arnold in theaters, man, in his, in his heyday, right? Yeah. You got to see, see Eddie Murphy in his heyday. So, I mean, I think I, I respect our choices. I respect them too. And, you know, I just want to give Buckaroo some money because it deserves money that I'm sure it did not get. So I'm just going to be there taking one for the team. That's my Paul, sacrifice. Paul's going buying four tickets for, uh, you know, the, the two seats next to him. <laughs> yeah. And just sprawling out. Extra large enjoy- popcorn. Yeah. Putting a, a tub of popcorn and candy on each seat. But Karate Kid, right? Comes out in the middle of all this. Makes a killing, right? It does incredibly well at the box office. Grosses over 90 million domestically, making it the fifth highest growing film of the year. This loaded year, it's the fifth highest film of the year. Widely praised by critics. It receives an Oscar nomination, which we'll get into later more deeply for, you know, the great character of Mr. Miyaki, played by Pat Morita. You know, it just really works and wins on every level. And yeah, that just makes me really happy, actually, to see this find its place too perfectly i feel like in this box office right because we have the natural we have a baseball movie mm-hmm. i'm trying to see if we have any sort of coming of age movies in here a little bit like the never ending story yeah, I would never say. Is, yeah that was the first one i was going to go to on that one but not too many i would say coming of age movies on on this box office so i feel like it works oh, there sorry, 16 candles you can't leave 16 candles off the coming to age list that's that's heresy <laughs> well said uh it's a big list I, I totally just skimmed that one but yes that would be heresy uh so i'm sure there's others we haven't mentioned right we're not we're not listing every film that came out that year <laughs> but no it definitely definitely fits the box office and it's a winner i mean the karate kid was the brainchild of i mean of many people actually so it's got an amazing backstory that i guess would start with jerry weintraub who's the executive producer of the film and you know, he basically saw a local news story about a kid who earned a black belt in karate to, to protect himself from a group of bullies and was immediately inspired. And so he worked for Columbia. They hired Robert Crayman to write the screenplay. Now, Robert Crayman's name is behind a ton of movies. I mean, he's done everything from The Fifth Element to Taken to Lethal Weapon movies to The Transporter. Mm-hmm. And he was able to pull from 17 years of karate memory. So he, he was a, you know, a young, a young student in the dojo his whole life. And so 
you know, he built these characters that are literally, you know, almost one-to-one from his life. Like he had a sensei that was from Okinawa. Uh, the sensei's name was Maitoku Yagi. And then he also had a tough Marine turned karate teacher uh, who ended up being the inspiration for John Kreese's character, right? The, the evil sensei uh, slash entrepreneurial head of Cobra Kai. So one of the greatest villain coaches of all time. I'm glad you said that too. So very, very small performance, right? By him. I mean, just in terms of screen time, he's not in it for a ton of time. What sells you so much about his performance in the limited screen time he has? Oh, it, it goes back to our um, coverage of the the thrash or the trashers, and uh, I, for, I forget his cool his cool mafioso name. I, I'm blanking on it, but the idea of the older, gritty veteran dude just dumbing the students left and right to teach them to make them hard, right? To make them hard. The idea of you know grinding stone on stone, that old school. It, it, it's it's a great thing because like if you played like like our podcast, we always talk about our childhood recreational sports. There's always that one coach or instructor, no matter what you play, that's like that. Like you might get on that team or you might play against that team, and, and it's, it's either way. Witnessing it, you can either laugh or get intimidated by it. <laughs> like, like there's like there's always that one adult who's just that extra, and it's the, the presentation in this one. Uh, was it they say strike first, show no mercy, right? <laughs> I love. I love the presentation. It's, all, it's, of course, the opposite. We know Miyagi, but so over the top, the way he's just dummying kids and the, the comparison of, of sparring and versus always trying to kill your opponent, right? It goes back to our coverage of Baki, interestingly, right? Um, this idea that he's not doing Kempo Karate. His Kempo Karate is wrong. Um, he's teaching him how to do like Doyle, like, you know, slit the throat. So I, I, I do like that devastation. And like we said, it's the predecessor of what we liked in the 90s. Like guys like uh, Gunnar Wolf Stanson, uh, our guy from uh, the Big Green, right? All those archetypes that we've talked about so much on this podcast. This is where it really kind of gets traced back to, I think, uh, particularly in the '80s. He he is the the chief master of that one. Yeah, and he he looks the part so strongly, right? He, he has the best scowl, and he's just got a fierce face. Right? He looks like he probably was considered to be cast in Predator and just didn't have the muscle capacity, unfortunately. <laughs> like, he looks like he's like, really, so look at he looks like a dude. Like, I didn't even Google him, but he looks like he might have been like in Nam or really raised by someone who's fucking in Nam and probably like done some shit. <laughs> he's got that persona. Yeah, no, he would fit in any war movie, I would say, really, really mm-hmm. well. That's funny. Yeah. If he hasn't played in more war films, that's a miss. And what's funny for our listeners is I've, binged in the past week cobra kai season one jordan has not yet but we're going to cover it very very soon and oh man you're gonna love it so basically season one is is really about how like john crease taints and ruins like the upbringing of johnny lawrence and turns him into like a a subtle sociopath slash monster but then it's Mm -hmm. also about how johnny lawrence is not necessarily the bad guy so it really rounds out the characters too it's it's actually really savvy in that it really shades in everything in grays um yeah. the only person who's probably still evil and has an amazing cameo which i can't wait for you to see is john crease he shows up at the the perfect point after a season that really is you know all the things you just mentioned right the yeah. no mercy attack first right those are all the lessons that we get throughout and it's it's really a, a interesting look at at how you know the formative years of like sports training or athletic training or karate training, whatever it might be, inform your worldview yeah. and screw you up as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Like I've heard of some of the show and like that just speaks to how 
great again the plot of this story is because like in all that description i just said of him dummying kids and all that like again it's about the ethos the absence of mercy the absence of compassion sportsmanship if you will right and i love the looks on the kids in the room right because they're disciplined but their eyes have a sense of fear and shame and like that's also the absent lesson or the lesson he teaches that there's a shame in defeat right which is the opposite of miyagi teaching is also the opposite of many like sports philosophies are ultimately the moral of tons of stories we've covered right shame or defeats uh growth loss is growth you lose enough you learn enough knowledge to eventually get that win right so i love the dynamics like because it ties so great both to you know kind of life uh combat um but also again like the idea of competition um and you know as you say like when competition becomes skewed it becomes something like bullying and uh borderline like sociopathism yeah yeah uh, and so it's really cool too with Cobra Kai was to see the perspective entirely, almost not entirely, but it's so balanced is what's amazing. But, but I would say it's first lead is Johnny Lawrence. So he is our real connection. And then it's about 40% also Daniel LaRusso. Um, mm. And it's not like suddenly Daniel LaRusso is the bad guy either. It's that like, we learn who Johnny Lawrence was. We even get flashbacks of the whole karate kid. And I love it because I want to catch up. But I love how I feel like the writers just watched How I Met Your Mother, and they probably just got high or something. They're like, "We just agree with Barney. Like Daniel was wrong. Fucking Johnny. Johnny's just this abused child. His story needs to be told." And it felt like they just went with that. It works. Like this is a great little uh, plot point. Like, is like he, he's a reoccurring character. Uh, William Zabka on uh, How I Met Your Mother. For those who've seen that show. Basically, uh, the character Barney, when he watches the Karate Kid, he always identifies with Johnny as, as a hero of the movie, right? Which is supposed to be opposite of the of the general viewpoint. But I like how, as you as you explain the point of the show, or like the good, the strong connection that really seems to be the driving home like factor is, uh, you know, the shame and all that, like how it shapes him and you know making him the hero. I just love that connection, and I'm so I'm stoked to actually watch it. It's been one of those ones on my list I just haven't clicked on, but I always hear great things about it. Yeah. I mean, that's so perfect. That really does. You're, you hit the nail on the head without even seeing it. I feel like that episode must be their launching point because it truly takes off from there. It's like saying, what if Johnny Lawrence wasn't necessarily the bad guy? Like what was his perspective really? Was our, our lead character here, Daniel LaRusso truly a good guy, right? He kind of swoops in, takes a girl. He's kind of obnoxious, right? Which is funny too, because when he first auditioned, right? The screenwriter, uh, didn't like him. He described him as obnoxious. And the director was like, yep, that's our guy. That's what they wanted. They wanted like a scrawny kid who had some attitude and wouldn't take crap from anyone, which is perfect, right? Because he's this kid from Newark, right? He's a yep. New Jersey kid. I think it's perfect for the role. And I don't think he's dislikable for that at all. I mean, I give him more credit for that. You know, he's not just this like diminutive geek who just purely gets picked on, right? He's yeah. He's got some fight in him and spunk in him already from the get-go of the movie. I yeah, love he that. has confidence and like, a backbone which is which is nice and also he's a smooth talker that's one of the best things he has is like he has these great like not necessarily pickup lines but he's good at responding to conversation he just understands how to talk to like women and just people in general and he just encounters assholes all the time and like he has a mouth like which i, I can like relate to so I, I always identify with that aspect of him like how he he's a good chirper too this <laughs> is the other thing which kind of leads me to like the the prank aspect of this too right because we got this cool prank thing there's so much we can we can cover but like one of the things i like about him is there's like that obviously that boyish like charmed him too but then he also has that like respect for competition uh developed through the absence father he's a very complex character that i, I think they do a good job of just like, kind of like mapping out and like making him like you know filling him out throughout the movie 
Yeah. I mean, I love that you pointed that out too. He's a smooth talker. He's always pranking, right? There's the Halloween gag that he does with the water hose in the bathroom. He's always trying to be so slick too, just like showing his juggling skills with soccer. He's just that kind of like cocky kid who's an outsider who's rubbing people the wrong way. And what is funny too is like now there's this whole faction of people who like just write hate articles on Daniel LaRusso as a character is like the most annoying lead ever. But the problem is, I think that they're being overly shaped by the fact that the film completely sides with him a lot, you know? Uh-huh. And so it bugs people, right? But if he was the outsider, we would understand like on a different sense. Like if we were supposed to not like him, we'd all love him, right? So I think they're just trying, they're just being subversive, right? Saying that like, mm-hmm. oh, we're supposed to comp- only side with his story. Yet he's kind of whiny, right? He's kind of aloof in his own way. No, I mean, what I think is so great about this, and um, if I had one knock on the on the movie that now it's totally fixed, to be honest, with the show, and it's not, it doesn't make the movie bad, is that Johnny Lawrence and John Kreese are amazingly deep characters for how little screen time they actually get, right? Because like anytime John Lo- Johnny Lawrence is on the, the, the screen, he's basically in the background, right? Kind of with his posse, mm-hmm. kind of like flaunting, posturing and so forth. Like we have great scenes with... Uh, Daniel LaRusso and his mom in, in a restaurant, right? And they're, I love the background where him and his posse are, are they see him, right? And they're like mm-hmm. planning something. But I feel like he only gets like a few like one-liners here and there, you know, a few showdowns moments, but then mm-hmm. nothing really. Do we ever have a scene with him just like on his own to see his life? Oh, no, not his own life. It's always him connected to Daniel or the love interest, right? And then, but also his things, just like the love interest, he's connected to wealth. That's a big connection in the story. So that's one of the things with those kind of connections. So like, we're only supposed to deal with this is like, yeah, that's a big part of the entire like ethos of the story is that the poor kid who has no resources has the shittiest resources to be regarding appearance and connection, but uses those to beat the people with the most massive resources. That's also a big underlying factor of like his brand of karate is this more authentic. If you want to be closer to like street fighting, if you will, because of the necessity of it. He didn't join it because like, oh, it's a pastime thing. And I want to, beat up on people which is the most important thing like that, that, that's absent of a lot of movies in general now but like the, the way he comes into it and, and, and into like you know karate as a sport at this time and how popular it was even going into the 90s when we were kids is still popular now it's you know it's more about mma mixed martial arts but like the ethos of why you got into karate and all that was so like you know hopefully you didn't like use it and that's always a big the big part of it which is i think is like so important so i felt like that's really absent of of the types of analysis where you're like it's fun. It's always fun to throw shade at like main characters. So I'm always, always welcome. those like fun, like hot takes. But like with this one, there's like no redeemability, at least with the first version before we get to part two and all the other stuff for anyone in Cobra Kai. They're all complete dicks. They're all assholes. They all know their coach sucks. They all know the tactics they use are against the rules. They know they're dirty fighters. They're the, they're the dicks and Baki who show up from death row right, to, to fight in the tournament. Like they get that and they they're compliant and all that shit. So that's why it makes that scene when he apologizes to Daniel for kicking his leg out, right? For taking the dislocating the knee, right? It makes it all the more powerful and better because like it makes the audience like, look, is this duplicity on the hand here? Is it like using the athlete effort when the coach asks you to do something that you don't want to do and you do it? Is it that like with the Charlie moment from Ducks, right? When he refuses to flop, right? And he says, I don't give a damn, like you can bench, bench me, et cetera, right? It's that similar moment. That's where I feel like makes this story so good is like you always see like, the guys in black are always bad. And I'm saying like the black hats in this, but they actually wear like the black geese. But I love that symbolism though, right? It stands up with arch- archetypally, it stands up and thematically. So when you get that big win moment with him being disabled and all that in the end, it's worth celebrating, right? If all the cards stack up against him in a way where 
you can't really root for Cobra Kai unless, like you say, you have a show where you explain the psychological reasons of add-ons. But within the story, they do such a good job making them just like the worst, worst of boys, which is a great 80s cliche. I think a lot of um, maybe newer uh, viewers don't quite get is like the animosity and the impenetrability of the bully, right? And this goes back into like so much of like, we, we, we love comic book movies now. And that's a huge archetype of the Spider-Man ethos. A lot of these dudes is that is that bully in this time period, right? But this is with the Kung Fu Flash. I feel like it's, it's a critical part because we don't deal with bullying as a culture the way we used to. And so that's, that's a big part of this, right? Is why I don't think people quite might, might be seeing that disconnect too. Um, which is why this is a great movie that stands in test of time because again the, it's ultimate action is like to get a stand up against a bully is you know you have to keep pushing through or like as Mr. Miyagi says you have to make it a fight um, it's not about whether you win or lose it's whether you you know, gain their respect uh, so again I, the, this, the way it's stacked up and it goes into traditional martial art all that it's a very well balanced movie and you can see that from like just from from pen to paper to the production value to all that it's, it's a hard one to knock like our hero and his motivations. Yeah, they brought up wealth, right? And wealth is such a huge factor here. It's an, it's it's spoken, it's literal, it's explicit, it's on the surface, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Especially with the date scene. Uh, yeah. Even in the very beginning with the early montage where very interesting kind of 80s move. We don't see our characters for like the first three minutes. We only get these overhead shots at their station wagon starting in New Jersey, right? Going through the Grand Canyon, going through... Utah, staying at roadside motels. Then the first time I think we see Daniel LaRusso and his mother is uh, when they're pushing the car because it won't start, right? Outside of like a crappy uh, roadside motif too, I gotta say. Yeah, really works, right? But that whole dynamic, right? Reminds me a lot of like 80s movies too. I'm just gonna bring up one for for an easy juxtaposition, but like Valley Girl, right? Because he's literally from the Valley, right? He's from Reseda and that's like a line, right? His love interest, right? Is from Encino and, and the father like asks like, the quintessential like rich, you know, wealthy white dude uh, in his like, you know, nice little McMansion asks like, oh, what part of Encino do you live in? And he's like, I don't live in Encino, I live in Reseda. And the look he gets is just like cold blooded pallor, right? It was just like this fear came into the eyes of his love interest, right? Because now suddenly, okay, he's like the poor Italian kid. And then we we get the part where they have to push the car down there. It's so endearing though, right? Because they're very resourceful, right? There's a lot yeah. of love in his family. And even we get the, the, you know, I'll get into it more later too, because we have so much to tackle on what we're talking about right now. But Mr. Miyagi too, right? He's an outsider. He's got a really deep story that has to do with World War II, with that, which has to do with relocation camps. And he's still obviously not super wealthy, but but, in, but immensely resourceful, right? With his cars, you know, he lives in like basically like this, the oil derricks, but like yeah, has this like own that somehow or something like that. Is that like I have no idea? I right? think was like was yeah. it? I got I didn't fact check this really quick, but like is that like a refer, like a reparations reference kind of thing or something like that? Like that's interesting. I have no clue. That could be that seems very layered. Like like you said, we're talking about it. Like to get to the point, uh, just to summarize for those who maybe haven't seen uh, this movie. It's a scene where Mr. Miyagi is basically you know drunk, mourning something. Uh, Daniel comes in to help him, and uh, we find out he's mourning uh, the death of his uh, wife, who uh, died in, in childbirth in Manzanar, uh, which is a concentration camp uh, that the Japanese in California were relocated to. Uh, yeah. So again, it has that really centralized location tied to you know Southern California and where they would have been sent to. But again, going with like that with that thing, all that whole scene is really conveyed through like you know this kind of um, 
broken dialogue because he's he's slurring his words and then the clippings of newspapers tell it together and then the final things like the letter from like a, a manzanar hospital i guess is what we're, we're supposed to be thinking is right yeah it's, it's a very like i mean considering the movie we're talking about right it's a pretty like didactic but like broken down symbolic scene um it goes in all sorts of ways yeah and it's very dark too right it's very somber for this for the film too it's when the weight really hits right it suddenly the movie gets this gravitas that it that it doesn't have before right it, it's it's got the bullying aspects which are not like lighthearted in any way right but yeah. there's a lightheartedness to them and so that's the first scene where things get really emotional and intimate too between the two right mm-hmm. and we get some of his background because he's this you know he's an elusive figure right he's like the apartment maintenance guy um, which i love it really yeah. works and he speaks through stories like like you said it's, it's the first time it's important like again because like i like the way the story does the whole absent father thing which is a very common motif in all these but it's a story of him telling Daniel about his father and memories of him through questions, right? And that's how you get like a little bit of a backstory that leads into that. So I, I feel like, again, it's, it's a good pivot point for the film too, because it's, again, that peeling back of what you know about Miyagi so far as, you know, stern, insightful, impenetrable in terms of his combat. And, you know, he's inscrutable. In this one, right, that's the first time you get to see him like vulnerable and weak. Um, and it comes, like you said, it comes out of nowhere. It's very just like just jarring for the audience and my understanding is i kind of wanted to cut it i guess but interesting enough that's probably like i said the reason he would have got the oscar nod it's, it's one of those ones where i could see why a director would want to cut it because i remember watching it this time i was like man this really took a dark turn i don't remember that much as a kid i do remember having some kind of trauma i don't remember being this dark and like damn that hurts hard but like i could see the the director whoever wanted to take this out argument but i could see why for for pat to want to get that in there and why it has to be in there and why that's probably the the hook for for the for you know taking that role. Yeah, and I I that really was I think the the scene that got him, you know, his Oscar nod, which is which is really interesting, right? Because it gives it, you know, the era and the aura of seriousness uh that takes it up a, a notch, right? It takes him out of archetypal territory too, even though he's still archetypal there, right? He's kind of a he's kind of an amalgamation of archetypes, right? Or uh, that are real, that are based on real patterns and real histories and traditions and stories, right? You know, we've had a lot of, it makes sense, right? He meets even the little things. He met his wife in Hawaii, right? But he's from Okinawa. Mm. You kind of just like naturally and organically kind of piece the puzzles of his history together, which I love, right? It's never too didactic. I mean, having Daniel LaRusso read the letter is, you know, not the most creative way to get that exposition out. He does read it out loud. Huh? He reads it out loud, right? Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> it doesn't go to like the narrator echoey voice at all. He's just like reading it out loud with his drunk sensei next to him. Yeah. I thought that was a little in need of more grace, but besides that, um, it definitely works. But yeah, this whole underlying socioeconomic lens and context is absolutely there, right? Mm-hmm. And Johnny Lawrence and his cronies, right? They're all riding motorbikes for the first in yeah. the first place. Uh, you know, those cost way more money than Daniel LaRusso's little bicycle, right? Uh-huh. And that scene where he gets knocked off the, the like sort of mountain ledge, right? And rolls over and tumbles. It becomes like literally recycled again and again in Cobra Kai. So like these are big points, right? Uh, the type of uh, transportation they have and these like moments. It's so funny how like you have to believe that 30 years later, these people are <laughs> fixated on <laughs> like these individual events that happened in their their teens. But 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 it happens, right? We still bring yeah. up some of the same shit every single time. It, it's, it's life that has those moments, you know? Um, stolen Butterfingers in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> 
can last yeah, never, never gonna let that go <laughs> yeah never let it go right exactly so so that's just like a perfect example if of our steady listeners right of things that just like reappear and so what's really cool though and i'm, I'm gonna try to stop in terms of talking about cobra kai i want to save it i don't i know i'm probably annoying because you haven't seen it yet but it's cool is that daniel larusso is now wealthy he runs an auto dealership the dude's living in like a, a six seven digit home like he is upper, upper, upper middle class, if not just upper class. Oh. Whereas Johnny Lawrence is sort of a drunk down and out Reseda guy. Um, <laughs> and we get his backstory too in Cobra Kai of like, he's raised by this wealthy asshole who cares nothing about him. And he ends up cutting ties and stuff. So it makes sense. They give a really legible narrative thread that you're like, okay, I can see how these two paths ended up as they did, right? But oh. that also sides our allegiances, right? Because- now, how do you not sort of root for Johnny Lawrence? Is this like alcoholic failed father trying to redeem himself? Whereas Daniel LaRusso has it all in Cobra Kai, <laughs> yet he's not unlikable either. So it's, it's really good. Um, it just shows that this, this launched, I think, something that really, really does work. But jumping back, we're, we're the Karate Kid is today, right? And we've now gotten into Mr. Miyagi Tori, right? Mr. Miyagi is one of the, the greatest characters of... Uh, you know, recent cinematic history, right? He's iconic. And, you know, he's up there with Yoda, with Obi-Wan. I'm trying to think of other mentor figures, Gandalf. Yeah. Uh, right. He's- oh, Master Splinter, man. <laughs> I got to get my years right. I don't know if he informed Master Splinter because like, it's right around the time when Ninja Turtles, the comic might come out before, but like totally right within that one. Oh, what's his name? Pai Mei, right? If those Kill Bill fans, one of my yeah. favorite mentor uh, slash uh, Pai Mei is a mentor slash priest. He kicks the shit out of fucking, what's her name? Uma Thurman in that movie too, so. Oh, I love that role. I'm trying to think of some Marvel ones too, because there's a ton of mentor figures. Oh, the the one from Doctor Strange, I can't think of her name, the ancient one, right? Uh, played by Tilda Swinson, if I remember right in that one. Yondu. Yes. People forget Yondu is one of my favorite uh, father figures slash mentor figures for uh, Star-Lord. I do like their exploration in the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I would even say, too, he has a little, I don't know, it's completely different, right? But like even all the Gordon Bombays, right? Uh, the Bad oh, News yeah. Bears coach. Uh, you know, the thing about Mr. Miyagi is he's, he has his stuff together, even though he does get drunk on on occasion, right? For um, good reason. For, of course, of course. It's very different, right? It's not like, yeah. like self-indulgent narcissism <laughs> yeah. or the spoiled like lawyer drunk. Uh, Listen to the Van Halen and chirping the cop when he gets pulled over. Yeah, very different context but he's not a goody two-shoes which i like right he lets daniel larisa drive his car even though he knows he doesn't have a license right you know he's a little rough around the edges for as like wise and sage-like as he is i mean because he's like above like dumb mores right dumb ethics like he cares about what matters right that that's why he's so fun too he has such great advice throughout right i love the chopsticks he's like we we were introduced to him literally trying to catch a fly with his chopsticks right and he tells later daniel larusso that if you catch a fly with your chopsticks everything else is possible right yeah. and of course daniel <laughs> he catches it in like his first try his luke uh, skywalker moment <laughs> total total skywalker moment you know but but like when Daniel asks him, like, do you think I will win? He's like, I'm not the one fighting. Like, it doesn't matter what I think. Like, every single retort is just perfect. I think he's so well-written in that way. And he somehow makes his child labor ploy <laughs> feel sincere and earnest. Because let's be, let's be honest. Let's go there. The dude completely exploited 
this kid. <laughs> oh no, I have the opposite argument. He is the father figure now. He did the father figure move, which like he goes back to his ethos. His boys have a goddamn attitude. He doesn't say goddamn, but I'll say it like that. He has a they have a damn attitude today. They need to stop fucking fighting each other. They don't stop. I'm gonna put that boy to do some chores because then if you do some chores again, he's gonna get the strength and all that shit before, and I'm gonna teach him the real thing about fighting. And so I agree with him as a real father figure in that one. I, I can relate to him at the this boy needs some straightening out <laughs> kind of thing to put it bluntly. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, but he's training out and he got a heck of a lot done in his yard, right? Oh, his property his... value just increased. I agree. Like he's like, he was just like beyond frugal and smart because he's both father figure and like landlord and both, like you said, he's pulling a maintenance job thing. And I see oil in the back and I didn't see borderline. So I feel like he's just like the smartest businessman we've ever seen on screen, basically. And like you said, got around, he's just circumvented that child labor thing. He's like, this is karate. Like, no, this is, this is karate. Show him Daniel son. Like, I mean, yeah, I want the Miyagi business plan. That's that's the pyramid scheme that we need to bring bring about here. Absolutely. I love that also he like gives a lesson about karate, right? In the background mm-hmm. of it, you know, how he learned karate as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. From his father. So we have that generational lineage dynamic going on. We get the etymology of karate, which right, ka means hand, rade means no hand, right? So it's like no hand, it's from China. I, I think that all really works and sets this as necessary too. Like we talked about with Baki and like the genre, if you're doing the karate movie and like the passing of knowledge, like you have to have the historical lesson in there. There's isn't as cool as Baki with like the flashy cuts and everything. And like the great, the great, like grainy uh, looking like film and whatnot. But it, it is it's like, it's one of those things I really appreciate the awareness of the genre, like the Kung Fu movie. And like you said, just like making it for an American audience. though, like, like being blunt, like dumbing it down. Like here's the ethos. Here's why I'm doing it. And it works so well because it's a high school kid, like a freshman who's who's like stubborn and hard headed, but has a good heart. Right. And, and that's what I think really makes it work so well. Um, like, again, the idea of concentration, breathing, again, the sprinkling in of the of the technique within like the chores, right? going back to our conversation of the child labor. Right. It works so well when he finally gets to re- you know, reveal his hand, um, which is both funny. Right. I remember. How, how do you feel watching it again? Is it kind of funny? Is it like motivational? I have like mixed feelings now because I remember it being funny. In the first time, what scene in particular about when he gets to use the wax on wax off for the first time, practically, I I thought it was funny also as a kid. Right. I thought, and I, but I also remember it being as a kid thinking it was more taxing or exhausting. I remember thinking it was just like this insanely like difficult meditative process. I remember like feeling the, the toil of it as a kid. Yeah. Like, and it came off as that, of course, right? When mm-hmm. he like leaves at the end of the day and he's all sweaty and he tells him to come back at 6 a.m. the next day, right? But I remember as a kid inflating that in my head way more than it was, which is funny. Yeah. That's the funny stuff. It's just like, I remember like how in my psychology, like it was just like this immense, immense task. And now I was just like, oh, it's just a task, right? It's just sort of a conduit for him to learn, you know, uh, focus, meditation, quieting the heart, finding balance and so forth. How about you? Uh, kind of both. I always remember it as both the, the revealing, again, because like there's all different ways the audience could probably find ways into the cleverness and like the insight that Miyagi possesses. Like I said, he's, he is one of the top ones, like a like an Obi-Wan Gandalf figure. He has great quotes in terms of, like we always talk about this podcast, the hero's journey, dude. Like he has the great guidance of the older mentor figure on that one. But like, I was thinking funny, but also is one of those ones where it made me always relate it to it because it's the, as a young person watching it, particularly as a child and, you know, I don't consider myself old, but like, you know, the respect for the elder always came through in that. And it's, it's that lesson you as a, as a young male, you hate to give in sometimes, at least me, I don't know about you, but like, 
that clash with the father figure and all that stuff or like against other males of being wrong versus being right. Right. And being proven wrong and accepting that and then learning from that. Right. That's a hard thing for some, some people to do. And I always appreciate that for that movie is that lesson being taught through that. Right. The, the justification of yes, tried and true knowledge is, is practical for a damn reason. It's been around for a while and I kind of know what I'm doing thing. Um, I always appreciate that, that lesson and it being reaffirmed. And I like the way it's, it's, it's not so much in your face, but that is the, one of the things I always like, that's why it's both funny and the way he gets him, you know, oh, he made him do all these chores, but he learned something, but the kid wasn't listening to is the other part. And that's the other thing I always like about that. The idea of attention to detail where, where, you know, the idea of presence and all that, how it goes both within the technique and within, you know, lessons in life and who's talking to you and the idea, the, the appearance and deception of appearances. I always appreciate with that, but that, uh, with that particular scene when he gets to actually use the wax on wax off well said yes it's so iconic right the phrase itself it's on posters and t-shirts and mm-hmm. quoted endlessly but it has many layers to it as you're as you're spelling out there right it's like a, a parental scene it's definitely like a, a scene of like sort of zen buddhist underpinnings right which are sort of coinciding with the whole karate culture right with sort of like far eastern philosophy that permeates the film right and at least his teachings of it um and like you said he's filled wall to wall with advice right just like you know he he has great rebuffs of like you never i forget something about revenge never wins right he he (laughs) says so he he just constantly has these very witty asides to frame the psychology of daniel in the right way because daniel is an underdog right he's basically training by himself in this very makeshift way right we have the contrast there is unreal right johnny lawrence in his uh in the cobra kai dojo right it's Mm -hmm. it's this rigorous rigmarole everyone's militant and i mean i love the scene where they they go and confront them and you know we see them doing their routines their like kicks Mm -hmm. and so forth and you already mentioned the whole scene where John Freese tackles a kid and is just like, <laughs> lose concentration in a fight. You're dead meat. 60 push-ups on your knuckles. Like, I mean, like, that is just, I, I love, I love the, the, like you said, the militantness of it and just like the assertiveness and like, yeah, that's a dude I want to fuck with. Not at all. And then on the other hand, right, we get the great hodgepodge of resourceful elements used to train Daniel LaRusso, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's basically balancing on a fishing boat which which works with mr miyagi's character mm-hmm. he's balancing it in front of waves right if you catch that he's not just like swimming in the ocean uh which is kind of hard to see right because he's barely above the water but each time the wave comes he's lifting up his foot to yeah to practice for that crane kick right that's yep. i love that it's element. all economic and like it's again it's all about labor intensive it's all about working class kind of things like yeah he's improving the house like we joke about it. he is doing like child labor it's all about like learning the skills of that you need to maintain a home learning the how, you know, how to do it. it's all practicality and it's like again stuff you wouldn't learn in dojo and stuff like Clearly, the um, Lawrence character is supposed to just be given, given the dynamics of the movie, right? The motorcycle, he's part of that country club that the girl girlfriend's in, right? You know, he's super spoiled is like the bottom line with that. It's kind of like what we're getting, right? Even like physically, again, like it's casting is like great on it. Like he's like, you look at him, like he dummy the shit out of Ralph Macchio in a fight, <laughs> regardless of a, of a karate kid fight or a karate match. Like you look at the size of the dude, very like he's, he looks like an adult and Macchio looks like the only actual high schooler in this movie. Uh, but it works like so well with like that contrast that like, David versus Goliath thing is like underwhelmed so, or highlighted so so well when you get to see them on screen together. And it's something that used usually sucks to these movies when you have like the kind of adult looking high schooler dude versus like the younger one. But this one it works really well uh, with our but again with our underdog, our underdog character. 
Yeah, I think that uh, the age gap is very pronounced, at least the way they look, right? Johnny Lawrence is way, way larger. Like 25. Yeah, <laughs> but that makes it more visually, you know, accentuated, right? That he's got to use sort of a scrappy fighting technique. Another thing I keep comparing, though, is like Cobra Kai, like the, the fighting is way more violent and technical and dynamic which I thought was less realistic. I thought they went too hard in that. Whereas this, I appreciated. It's just little, like you kick the guy or you hit the guy, right? And uh, you win the point, right? Yeah. And this yeah. one's fluid because it's all just one shot. And it's like, it's not like the fanciest karate shit. But if you watch like the techniques and cuts they're using, like it's cool karate. Like for the most part, I watch a lot of karate. I watch more like MMA kickboxing and stuff like that and boxing. But like when you do watch karate, like it's pretty cool. Like when you actually watch these scenes and the way they're cut together, like it works really well. At least showcasing like the sport aspect. It's a good job of like explaining how point fighting works versus like you already got to see how they fight, like, you know, a street fight where in this movie, pretty much. I love the way it's how humorous it is, too. Cause like, again, I love the humor of like of uh, Mr. Miyagi, how he's just kind of going through things with Daniel. He's like, I don't know. We just do this together. Like, I don't know the rules. Like, I just stole you the black belt. Like, just go do it. <laughs> we'll figure it out together. And I love like how they, how he learns, like, you know, it's all about going high and all that stuff, but it works with the audience, too. Because you ask a lot of questions that kind of get answered with, with the kicks and stuff like that. And then they, they let you know why like going low is wrong in karate. Like it's lo- sounds logical, but right. But the actual techniques are cool though. Cause I got like how we get some callbacks to like the Mr. Miyagi leg sweep from the beach or one of those ones, right? Where he actually gets to use it uh, against a guy who's kind of fighting, fighting a little low. We get to see it like, again, the techniques come back, but they're, I like how they're all just like one cut. And it's not like going close up on the fist, going on the leg. It's just showing it more as like kind of like, like compare like when you get like those good hockey and soccer shots where you just see like a good goal going through. Uh, a lot of those like like the one where he steps to the side and does like the body kick that one looks pretty cool. The only one that's really exaggerated is obviously the crane kick, the most iconic kick of all time. But like the actual like competition leading up to it, it's cool. It reminds me of like blood sport, just way less dramatic. That's the fun of blood sports like the faces, the slow motion, you know, the, the powers and the blood obviously a blood sport. But this is cool. I, I, I forget how actually good and how compact the tournament is because it's a it's like the last like 10 minutes of the movie or something like 15 right maybe i mean it might be even a little too much with 15 but it, because of how they just pick the best kicks and stuff like that it works really well what i also love about the tournament too is like the lead into it when they show up right getting them on lying about the black belt stealing the black belt uh faking that he doesn't know english i i to circumvent the rules i just thought that like the whole subterfuge to get just him enrolled in fighting was really fun. It was like this like con, like this sort of like heist almost, right? Just to like get him into the tournament at that point. And so like that like was a nice introduction of this outsider who had to like, you know, side every single rule just to just to be in the competition itself, which is another trope of these sports movies, right? Yeah. Um, it's just like trying to get on the stage to even to even compete, right? Like cool mm-hmm. runnings, for example, right? Oh, Much yeah. of that movie is I'm just trying to get into the Olympics. And um, the jerseys, right? We got another sports, because I'm sorry, you mentioned sports tropes. And I love this one when he gets his D, mm-hmm. all right? And this one has a has a tragic story behind it. Like Miyagi's wife had made it, obviously, for their unborn child. But again, the way it's given to him is just like, so like you said, it goes with that great sports cliche of like the jerseys, like when the Ducks get their jerseys, when Team Jamaica gets their official jerseys, right? I love, always love the idea of like the, the look and confidence when you're official, right? No matter what sport it is, it's a big part of any sport, right? And it goes always, it goes back to that economic thing, right? You have to have the best equipment or whatever. Um, and I love how, how Miyagi, again, with in line with everything, how he earns it. And it's not just given to him, if you will, even though it's it's a gift, right? It's given to him at the right time. Uh, it's not a black belt, which I also appreciate. I like the dynamic, how it's 
how again how, how, under Miyagi's system of martial arts, there's there's no belts, right? It's like it's earned on on merit. Yes, and uh, going with the tropes, right as well. I love that we get, as we noted, like the unique training, right? We always love these ways of finding a very cinematic approach to sports training, right? Something that's quirky. And just like yeah. every scene, I just remembered another one, like Mr. Biagi in one is wearing catcher yep. equipment, right? I mean, that itself is for the humor to it, right? There's a humor to it. And it works. It's so practical together. because like, that's my brother and I used to do that with our sports gear and shit like that to like practice, like, you know, kicks and stuff like that. Not because of Karate Kid, just because it was like, you just kind of use whatever pads you have available kind of thing. Right. And like, you know, we played like hockey and baseball. So we had like some of that gear. So I always like that one, like, uh, like that kind of like, just use what you have, like to kind of like imitate, like what you see or what you're trying to do. So that scene always, always like, always thought was like pretty authentic. I like the dynamics. It just, again, highlights that, that class struggle in this. And I love, like, I used to live in Reseda actually. So I love the idea of like, because they, for those who aren't familiar with like LA, Reseda and Encino are literally divided by like a street that's only like five minutes apart, no matter which direction you drive. And like the economics aren't even that much different, but, but there's like a class, like weird class dynamics that exist even today. So, so again, I, I like that how it's always like somehow they, they do a good job of always tying it back to that kind of like working class proletariat struggle. Yeah. They always do a really savvy job of making things resourceful as you've said practical that's your word i think for the episode right i'm using resourceful yeah that's a better word and probably no i think both the words work work very well um and they, they both get at the whole ethos of mr miyagi and daniel it's also very uh you know cinematic in the way it looks the visual cinematography like when he balances right daniel and mr miyagi balances too on the wooden plank on the beach with the crane kick right that famous mm. famous silhouette shot I mean, that is a beautiful shot that like sticks and sears oh, yeah. in your memory, right? That is one of the great shots in cinema. Oh yeah, dude, it's iconic. And not just, like I said, cinema and fighting movies, if you will, but like, I, yeah, it's, it's one of the best scenes. Yeah, and also I thought it was very underappreciated throughout time. It's the scene where he's on the boat and it's just kind of almost black and white and the water's sparkling, it must yeah. be done. The solo montage, <laughs> I love it. It takes place, we gotta give context. So it's after like the, Miyagi hangover is what kind of where it'd be. It's like the dude just went through some stuff. He's not going to go train the next day. And you see like Daniel out just doing the routine. And I like that. The montage works really well. Just him doing all this stuff without Miyagi. And obviously he's doing it well. But like you said, that black and white scene goes really well. But I love, I love the, the symbolism of it all. Like him just doing the work and knowing his mentor will still be there kind of thing. There's a lot of like just strong, cheesy symbolism. I think just like it's pretty like, I want to say like profound, but it resonates differently when I, when I rewatch it now. <laughs> Yeah, and even the scene where Daniel shows up and first sees Mr. Miyagi trying to catch the fly with his chopstick, he says, isn't a fly swatter easier? Mm -hmm. Right, that's quintessential to the motif going on here in that the easy way doesn't necessarily foster excellence, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. build character, it doesn't build concentration, it doesn't build greatness in any way, right? Um, sometimes impoverishment, sometimes a lack of something is actually to your benefit because it makes you grow. It makes you work harder, right? And we see that time and time again throughout this, this film. I mean, even his Halloween costume, right? Because he makes the quip to Mr. Miyagi when asked, why is he not going to like the Halloween dance? And he says, right, oh, I would go if I was the invisible man, right? Because he's mm. being bullied all the time. 
And then we get him at the dance and he's got one of the greatest Halloween costumes of all time. I can't believe this costume isn't used, even though it's extremely hard to probably put together more often. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's a shower. He's like surrounded by, a, you know, a shower curtain. He's an yep. invisible man. I love it. It's, it's, it's really witty, right? It's really clever. And it's using ingenuity to overcome a lack of technology and commodity, right? A lack of tools because of course they can't, you know, they don't have like refractive polymer. We don't even really have it yet (laughs) to create sort of an (laughs) invincibility cloak. So yeah, I I just really appreciate all those points. Before we go to the next one, because like you brought the costumes. I love that like Cobra Kai is rocking like this combination of like misfits, like color makeup, skeletons, almost like the like I can't think of the gang in um, Warriors, but the baseball dudes with the skeleton faces. It's like this weird combination of all like these like, you know, iconic, just like badass, cool looking skeleton stuff. And of course, you know, they're going to get their chance to like chase him down those gears later. I, I love, like you said, it works so well with like the differences in their costume. Like you go the Invisible Man versus like the ghouls, if you will. Really clever, but like visually striking. It's one of those ones I, I've always just remembered like Johnny Lawrence and his cool ass, like almost like Danzig like ma- makeup. But again, one of those other ones with the crane kick and like that scene that I think is another kind of like iconic, if you will, like chase villain chase scene. Yes. I'm so glad you segued there because I wanted to talk about their gang elements. Right. And last week we had our guest on Matt Stroll and he was talking about how he was doing a deep dive into gang movies, this sort of gang paranoia. And I never heard of like that subgenre before, but then that really definitely swept cinema in the 80s, right? Because you brought up the Warriors. I wrote that in my notes. I was thinking about the Outsiders. I was thinking about the Lost Boys, right? And the list goes on and on, right? We had this this sort of gang paranoia that swept the nation that really started, I think, from like the crime in New York City, at least from the Warriors, right? Um, Like on the subways and so forth, which we see still rippling through our pop culture, right? The, the, yep, the yep. last Joker movie was all sort of a loaded al- allusion to that. But I feel like this really has the same elements here, just, you know, relocated in the land of Beach Boys, right? And soccer on the beach and and so forth. But, you know, they show up with their motorbikes they're all wearing in that scene, like sort of red leather jackets, right? It's just so yeah. quintessential, like Warriors-esque costuming. Um, yeah. Definitely fills all the, the, the check marks on the list for the tropes of like 80s gangs in my mind. Definitely. Definitely. The only thing they're missing is like the switchblades and Mohawks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely are missing the Mohawks, uh, which we'll get. I'm so excited for you to see Cobra Kai because you get that in there. You'll also get a throwback to the skeleton costumes in that. As oh, well. hell yeah. <laughs> um, I think I might be that this year. I just might just be a Cobra Kai skeleton for Halloween. I, I think I'm going to be a shower. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Too. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. I keep meaning to call back to it because I didn't get to say it. When you asked me like with the wax on wax off scene, right? Is it funny? <laughs> Is it like sort of a good teaching lesson? I All of the above, right? But, but there's a scene after that that I thought was hilarious. And I was immediately framing my mind. It's like, that's, that's what she said joke way. And it kept going and going and going. And I can't believe this didn't ever turn into sort of a meme or a soundbite but when he's explaining right mr miyagi is explaining to daniel how to paint the fence which is exciting too because i only remembered the initial wax on wax off with the car i didn't remember that he also does the same motions with the with the wooden deck and so forth and then with the fence i think that's also creative right these multiple domains these multiple tasks and assignments of doing sort of the same technique in different modes right in different Mm. 
with different results. But in that scene, right, Mr. Miyagi's like, it's all in the wrists. You need to take long strokes, a long stroke up, long stroke down, all in the wrist, all in the wrist. And I was just, I was cracking up by the end. I hope uh, I don't have to spell it out for our listeners too much, but it's definitely an onanistic pun <laughs> um, that, that really worked for me. Absolutely hilarious. So next time you watch it, anybody, when that scene comes on, just try to see the double entendre there. Right. <laughs> it's a great masturbatory pun. And it goes on and on. It didn't stop either. I was like, this sounds really hilarious in my mind. You know, like right off the bat, I caught onto it. And then he keeps going for like 30 seconds. And yeah. I, was just, I was thinking also like, I was like, Chubbs, it's all in the hips. It's all. And I was like, man, get, get off me. What you doing? I thought of that too. This is so funny. Our associations, right? Within the weird, like sort of echoes of, of this genre. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is you, you now you brought up Happy Gilmore, which we almost did for our showing instead we're doing the Karate Kid. And mm-hmm. with the whole golf, you know, mini golf montage date also just had yeah. so many memories going through my mind of, you know, Happy Gilmore for some reason. Love that. I mean, he starts off with him playing table hockey, which I mm-hmm. love. And then, you know, going into miniature golf and stuff. So I'm thinking Happy Gilmore there too. But yes, it's all on the hips. It's all on the wrist. <laughs> it's a great parallelism. I didn't, I didn't catch that, but that's as, as explicitly as you did. So <laughs> nice job with that one. Anyways. Oh, we, we haven't talked about the music. Oh yeah. The music yeah. is a ton of fun. What I loved about it was like, we get this great score, right? We have a perfect soundtrack song. We also have 80s bangers that are wall to wall. And we also got really nice, like Japanese traditional kind of oriental music. Hopefully yeah. that phrase is not too taboo to say now, but it does show up in the movie though. So it's, yeah. it's topical within the time period. Yeah, exactly. So I, I thought it was really well balanced. It always kind of smoothly fit the scenes, right? We got the 80s buoyant songs to really pick up the pace on the date scenes or in mm-hmm. you know the school recess scenes then we get the the perfectly toned classical strings that have that sort of far east sound to them with the you know Mr. Miyagi heartfelt monologues you know I, I think the music really uh works did you have any insights on the the soundtrack for this no you almost covered it all but like like you said it works on like each like macro level of what attention the scene needs to like call it particular there's tension like the one where he's getting chased with the motorcycles and like or the one where he's getting chased just them running before Miyagi does like the Spider-Man beat down I don't know who I don't know who plays that song right but it's this weird almost like not quite punk rock but kind of like electric kind of like vibey spooky rock kind of thing going on perfect with the costumes and like them running through like the the field and everything heading to the complex obviously the uh, you're the best is one of the the you know the go-to quintessential fight songs if you will right it works perfectly for all sports but like you said the, the call to action on each piece of music even the beach I, mean, I think we get some beach boys if i remember right in that scene right it's just like the perfect call to it and of the moment right and like like when they're in high school like it, it creates the the aurora of like youth and like love and all that's like in the air and everything it's, 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 a, it's a good it's one of those like really well-balanced soundtracks uh, that captures the mood of the scene like just like encapsulates it perfectly the the beach boys fits perfectly of that scene uh we have like the 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 main motivational theme song right uh is by joe esposito it's you're the best <laughs> and it's great right i mean joe esposito also did the the song the flash dance and coming america 
And it's funny. This is a cool trivia fact. Rocky three was supposed to feature this song first. He wrote it for Rocky three, but Stallone went with the banger, total banger, the probably most quintessential sports movie song. I have the tiger instead. So we get this more unique one. I was disappointed. We, we mentioned before, even on, uh, we came on the podcast that the glory of love by Peter Satira, which we know through newfound glory, they covered it. Yeah. wasn't in this one. I guess we'll get a, really enjoy it when we do karate kid too though um, definitely but, but yeah I, I don't know about you i was like listening and like waiting for it because you know i definitely associate that song uh, with karate kid and and nfg so yeah same i was waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it but no this definitely has a quintessential 80s song and soundtrack which it needs uh and 80s vibes are all over it i mean the golf date mm-hmm. the arcade yeah, the arcade. Everything, everything in there with the arcade. Like, you know, get, the they get dropped off. Like, mom drops them off for their date and, like, I'll pick you up at, like, 11. Yeah, exactly. Even his clothes, I love, like, well, also it's showing, like, the socioeconomic stuff through the clothing, too, right? But, like, just his, like, camouflage pants with, like, a tucked-in shirt. I mean, just, like, these weird styles and fashions mm-hmm. that that are actually more organic and natural to the 80s than the stuff we see in like stranger things today which is great too um, yeah it's definitely more exactly that's a good way to put it. organic it's like not as just like compounded into you know different eras of the 80s all coexisting as one thing like yeah you really like, see like the trendiness of stuff like the, the actual trend at that time it's, it's a different take than like say like license to drive which is yes. like i think a few years later if i remember right and I brought up Rocky three, uh, but we have to bring up the fact that the original Rocky film and this film are directed by the same director, right? Avildsen. And so this is really another intriguing part of this film is that John Avildsen was hired by Jerry Weintraub to sort of recreate the magic of Rocky. And they did. That's what's really, really remarkable. It's tough to do that, right? It's tough yeah. to... To, to catch lightning in a bottle twice. What I think is so remarkable about this is that they really changed the Malou, right? They turned it from a, an adult character who's also in a gritty, you know, proletarian background, right? In Philly. Yeah. And they, they gave it a coming of age story, you know, about a teenager relocating across the country. So totally different in many ways, but, mm. in, but in a lot of ways, very similar, right? They, it has the same crowd-pleasing uh, levels of uh, you know satisfaction by the end as Rocky. Oh, definitely, easily. It builds up perfectly. Like I said, like it's like a two-hour movie, and not a whole lot of like fights actually happen in the movie, right? There's like three scuffles with Daniel and his bullies, pretty quick ones, right? Pretty decisive. All of them are all arch fights, like lead to the next story arc. But you get rewarded with that cool thing at the end in the feel-good moment, and it's super cliche, but it, it works, right? We end with Mr. Miyagi's face. The only thing that's missing is like a thumbs up, but it works really well, right? You like you want it to end there. It's okay. Like it's gonna pick up really cool with Karate Kid Two, where it kind of starts there. But like the way it ends, like again, it's it's, a, it's good for this because like like I don't know if they knew they had like a franchise in their hands or whatnot, but it does. It leads great into like wanting more of the story uh, because Daniel wins one conflict. There's so many conflicts set with this, right? With his pride, with Johnny, uh, between Miyagi and Crease, right? We know there's beef there. There's so many like little threads that are like not just hinted at, but like walked on in that last tournament by the actions of Kreese, by the actions of Cobra Kai, by the actions of Miyagi, right? It makes for that the beginning of the second movie, like one of the cooler, I think one of the cooler beginnings of a movie, particularly like a sports movie. Uh, as I recall, I haven't seen it in a bit, but like, yeah, it, it leads great with like that two hour structure. Yes. I mean, absolutely. It fits really well and it 
crescendos really nicely into the final showdown. And we've had a few now recently. We had uh, the Blood of Heroes, right? Where they end the game and it ends pretty much on a close up shot. And then we also just did Rollerball. And this one too now, where like, I like that. They finished the final match, the final showdown. We get a sentimental and poignant close-up of, of a key character, you know, in, in a moment of euphoria. And that's it. We don't need this sort of quintessential two-minute falling action, yeah. I don't know, jokey, mo- you know, vignette. It like leaves the audience with something to consider. Like, it's a really good conclusion. Like, it's a great conclusion. Like, if you read a good, like, essay or a good piece, that really concludes something. It gives you, like, not just a recap of, you know, the finality of it. It's that thing to think about. Yeah, I think why this does work and why Rocky works, right, is both are at heart really good character studies, right? And the textures, the nuances, they're just all there. Even like the opening sequence when he shows up at the apartment, right, with the fetid green pool, uh, with the old woman who they're trying to figure out if they're related or know the same people from New Jersey. Isn't that I, Happy's mom talking about Happy Gilmore? Isn't that supposed to be Happy's mom? I would yeah, love Happy mom, I remember right. I would love if that's true. I have no uh, clue. Look, look really quick while you saw it. Okay. Yeah. Well, check that out and I will keep going because I mean, I absolutely love the textures of this. I love the attention to detail and it really goes behind the scenes. I mean, they put so much effort into, I don't know, the small things like the, the fight choreographer that they hired for this went to great lengths. So he always taught Ralph Macchio, right, who is playing Daniel LaRusso and Pat Morita, playing Mr. Miyagi together, right? He wanted to create the aches and pains of of two old men, and he wanted to build camaraderie. On the other hand, he also trained John Kreese, and he trained uh, William Zidka and, you know, the Cobra Kai group. And Mm -hmm. when he trained them, he kept them separate because he wanted to, first of all, keep up the impression that Martin Cove, the actor playing Kreese, was other than them, was above them, was different than them, right? Mm-hmm. And he wanted to keep up that like that authoritative aura, right? So I, I mean, I just thought like even that small detail, I don't know, just shows that that a lot of TLC went into this. And I'm just Definitely. curious, did you find it? I did actually. So uh, Frances Bay, who's also in Happy Gilmore, Seinfeld, uh, she has the vodka stolen from her from Jerry in that, in that seminal episode. Uh, yeah, she's the old lady from Jersey who's sitting on the bench. Uh, so there's our there's our connection to to uh, Happy Gilmore, which means we have to do Happy Gilmore next time we do a live thing. Now that's that's really cool trivia there. And I just have to shout it out that the uh, the trainer for everyone is Pat E. Johnson. His background was in Tong Soo Do from uh, Korean martial arts, and he was also trained by Chuck Norris and worked at one of Chuck Norris's school and even had a part in Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, yep. which is. It's just like a bunch of fun facts. And he's uh, the referee, right? Uh, was he the referee in the film? I'm not sure. He, all I know was the guy who trained everyone. Like he was yeah, their yeah. martial arts specialist. I believe he got to be the referee. Oh, awesome. If I remember right. That's uh, rad. I'll double check that. But I'm pretty sure I read that when we were researching this. I mean, they have a ton of talent behind the scenes. They also have real life martial artists, Fumio Demura, who does all of the stunts for Mr. Miyagi, right? Because Mr. Miyagi, you know, he can't be beating up a bunch of bullies in skeleton costumes naturally so easily right or climbing chain link fences at his age break an ankle landing yeah exactly but uh fumio just he's got the craziest story like this guy was this karate and kobudo expert in japan dude packed a suitcase sell to america with 300 bucks in his in his pocket slept in garages basically gave live demonstrations outside of knott's berry farm for years you know worked his way up 
I love these types of stories. Also befriended Chuck Norris and through a recommendation from Norris got, got the part for Mr. Miyagi as a stuntman. They actually were interested in him even taking the role because he's, you know, so good at that martial artist stuff, but you know, he wasn't as natural of an actor and didn't even want to be the actor. So he just became the double for the whole franchise. So (laughs) pretty, pretty rad stuff. Also Toshio Maifuni, it was the first choice by Jerry uh, Weintraub to play Mr. Miyagi. And I mean, that is just a super fun fact for any cinephile out there. I mean, the greatest, you know, I, I think Japanese martial art, you know, badass in the 60s. Uh, you know, he was in every Kurosawa movie. Yochimbo, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, all those movies. He almost played Mr. Miyagi and would have had a very different take. I don't think it would have been as good. He's way more stern. You know, he's got like a square head. He's way more masculine and strong and fierce. And what's so perfect about Miyagi, right, is, you know, he's he's definitely got the, the authoritative uh, sensibility in the sense that like he's wise, but he's got a very much of a wizened elderly take, right? He's kind of cutesy, right? When he calls Daniel, Daniel's son every time, right? It's very yeah. like... I don't know, cuddly. So it, this movie needed that. It needed the Yoda mentor. Yeah. It didn't need the badass mentor. Oh, exactly. Because you get too much out from Cobra Kai anyways. You need <laughs> like you need the laughter, the levity. And like that's like, actually the good one. Like, I think uh, Yoda is a great comparison. Pretty like Empire Strikes Back Yoda. Where he's kind of like a pest at first. And he's like this weird like Muppet, like hitting R2. But like then he starts doing like cool ass stuff with his little body. Like, oh, that guy could wreck you. That, that's that's a great appearance when he finally, like when he, like you said, when he references the seniors talk about, when he does jump over the fence and hands the boys, like, you know, their first like beat down, right? It, it was, it's a great moment physically. But then the few scenes later, he goes to that very place, like to their, you know, to their dojo and just walks in there, you know, and throws down the challenge in the most polite way too. By the way, right, he throws down a challenge politely and gets like shit for it, which is, makes it even better. Like the, you know, the confidence that he has in himself and his skills. Precisely. And he doesn't all- throw a punch the whole movie. Right. We forget that. It's not to like Karate Kid 2, where I think we see him actually like he teaches Daniel stuff, but we don't really see him like actually, you know, throw knuckles at all. No, he's only fights for defense, right? Because like I said, he does say like, you know, he hates being the aggressor. That's what he makes him so perfect and why, you know, Toshio... Maifune would be wrong for this, right? Because Toshio mm. is more like Arlie Ermi, right? Like, let's go to a reference oh, yeah. to Prefontaine, right? Like kind of militant, kind of soldier-like, right? So that foil would be too one-to-one, right? This is a completely different sensibility, right? Which we get between Kreese and Miyagi. And that's what, what this film really needs, right? It needs that hyper-start contrast in guiding young people towards, mm. you know, towards the same goal. To, to get the drama, to get the tension, which which I love so much. So yeah, I think that, I mean, that would have been a disaster. I mean, it still would have been a probably decent movie, but it would not have been the same movie if we didn't get Pat Morita to play oh, Mr. Yeah. Miyagi. So anyways, we've tackled a whole lot on this and we're also doing a live Q&A and trivia and a lot of uh, fun stuff at our live showing that we'll release as well for everyone on here. So let's just get to our final verdict. What do you think? Is this an underdog or overrated movie and why? You know, I think going into this, I was feeling like this is an overrated movie because I hadn't seen it in a while. Not that I don't dislike this movie. It's one of my favorite movies up there. Uh, But seeing like how it holds up and as again, as a fan of like combat sports and like an age when you're like, we're just inundated with so much 
different forms of fighting and stuff the principles and like the lessons and just the values and still in this movie still hold up and i just want to give a comparison i was thinking this recent time i was watching um a modern family for those who listen know i love my my sitcoms uh there's a great episode where phil's you know trying to bond with his uh daughter's boyfriends and try to wants to pass down knowledge to them uh he just wants to be like the dude to make sure you know they learn the right way and can take care of his young girls. He's going to order the UFC fight and uh, something happens with the UFC fight. They have to watch Karate Kid. And the whole time, the guys are just chirping the Karate Kid like that technique wouldn't work. That old dude's just out of his mind, man. You just sweep the leg and put him in a, in a knee lock. He's done or arm bar him, right? <laughs> but like in the end, you know, in typical sitcom fashion, something happens in the house and Phil has to fix it all. And they all come to like adore him. And it's like, it's an underlying message of, you know, how like universal the Karate Kid is. And like the dudes at the end is like, you're just like that old dude in the Karate Kid with that great wisdom. And he just schooled us. It's like the summary of it all. And like, I always like it as an episode, but it holds up when I watch it this time. Like, it still is like the go-to lesson of, of, as he says, of boys having bad attitudes and how to deal with it, right? It's this timeless story and this timeless thing gets compacted into all sorts of narratives and stuff like that. But like the old school way of just, you know, Miyagi's approach is like this like cyclical uh, strategy that I think is like valid. And I, I feel like even though it's made in 84, it holds up in 2022 more than most people would assume. So I'm, I'm gonna say it's it's a uh, underdog. Awesome. I will have to agree. Yes, I am also gonna put this up as a capital U underdog. I do think there's moments where viewers might think it's overrated for a second just because it has such prestige, right? And it's like up there in the pantheon of sports movies, right? It's pedigree is very hard to live up to. And I think that is why though, ultimately it is an underdog movie because it doesn't win by merit of doing anything too outlandish, right? It doesn't resort to any cheap tricks. Uh Uh, It's just a good heartfelt movie. And it reminds me of the scene, right, when Daniel first goes into Mr. Miyagi's, I think his like kind of workspace at the apartment complex, right? He's pruning his bonsai trees mm-hmm. and he's teaching him. I think it's a really great mentor moment, right? Teaching him the bonsai uh, art of, yeah. you know, trimming these trees, right? And he says, close your eyes. And then he tells him, just trust the picture. If it comes from inside your head, it's the right one. And I love that. It comes after as well. You know, Daniel was like, how do I know this is going to be good? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like, you don't, you just have to intuit based off of like a heartfelt instinct. Right. I feel like this, this film as, you know, cliche in places as it is, as tropey in places as it is, as it is really works because it does come from a heartfelt origin. Right. I think the screenwriter brought a lot out of his real life. I think that Pat Morita inflected a lot from his life into Mr. Miyagi's character, right? They found the perfect actor to play Daniel LaRusso. They actually, I think, found a great actor to play Johnny Lawrence. And I also love that neither of them became huge stars after, right? They only kind of lived off of them, the sort of reputation created by these roles, yeah. really, right? The sort of reverberations of these roles in pop culture, you know, appearing on sitcoms throughout time in very yeah. self-referential ways. And now the sort of resurgence of it through the Cobra Kai Netflix series, right? Mm. But I think it's because it's such a singular story and they fit it so well. I think that makes it even more, I don't know, awesome. It's like they will always be so intertwined with these two characters that it it just makes it mythic to me, makes this story mythic and those actors mythic for that. And that's really special. It's a special thing, actually. Mm. So yeah, I think this is a complete winner by the end. Um, but it's a small stakes movie. And that's, that's the funny thing. Don't come in expecting like, you know, 
fireworks this is just a really good summertime character drama i hope that generations continue to enjoy this as we did uh, when we were younger and as we still are as adults and i think that cobra kai will do that i think it's definitely reawakened a whole new generation of viewers so okay so on that note let's really quickly get into a very few sound bites from critics so the karate kid did very well on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 89% on the tomato meter and the audience score is 82%. And I'm going to start it off with Roger Ebert, who gave it a full four out of four. And he put an exciting, sweet-tempered, heartwarming story with one of the most interesting friendships in a long time. I love it. It's so simplistic, his little take. It really captures the sort of innocence of this movie too. Right. It's just such an innocent, heartfelt, heartwarming movie. So what did you find over on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, pretty similar, actually. So this comes from Emmanuel Levy, uh, who gives it a B for his rating scale. Uh, uh, Levy writes, upbeat, sentimental and predictable tale. But the acting of Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita, who is Oscar nominated, is good. And their friendship is charming. Right. Again, pretty simplistic, but like it, it's it's valid. I think our discussion, I think because we kind of deep dive these things, though, I feel like there's a lot more to it than that is then in my view is what makes us good. Like, again, like like it's more than its sentimentality. I think the predictability is kind of what makes it so, so good is the way the, the like they use the word friendship here. But like I keep using the word like, again, the, the absent father theme and motif is what's really developed fluidly in this. And I think that's something that people don't, at least in our quick readings of this, no one talks about. It's something if you read a bunch of stuff on Fight Club, everyone talks about that, you know, tons of stuff. But that is clearly what's going on here in my view of, re- in my, in my view of this text is, is again, the sentimentality is filling that role, uh, which is quintessential to that hero's journey. Well said. I think that that, that sort of the father-son story and plot line is really there, especially when we learn that Mr. Miyagi lost his kid with his wife. So it speaks to your Obi-Wan Kenobi reference, right? With Luke Skywalker, him being the father figure for which his friend's kid and teaching him the ways of the force, which dad didn't know and all that. It's, you know, it's like we said, it's a common trope. Um, but it, it, again, it's fun because it's in the context of an 80s movie in Reseda, right? And it's his maintenance dude, right? <laughs> I just love the practicality of it, right? It's in so many ways. It's, it's fun because no one wants to say it. it's all the indicators of something you want to avoid in a stranger. Daniel's mom is like realistic. We're having fun. If we're really being cynical about it. Daniel's mom is just a shitty, busy mom, unfortunately, who has too much you know, work to do to keep a household running and knows that her kid's hanging out with the weird maintenance guy, right? That's the other, the other thing. The weird maintenance guy is taking a lot of interest in my kid, um, but it's not that, right? It, it completely avoids that in a, in, in a clever way and in, in, in an earnest way. Yeah. And we didn't give her enough respect. I'll take a different take on her though, too, is that she's also extremely frugal, extremely resourceful. And, sure. you know, she can't really afford karate. She can't afford the dojo, right? She's happy in a really slightly selfish, but understandable way when he doesn't like the, the dojo, right? She says, oh, good, I couldn't have afforded it anyways. Yeah. In, in she a even non- offers to pay, right? Yeah. That great, like, but just like Daniel, that uh, where he gets that sense of um, portraying uh, self-sufficiency. Exactly. But, you know, and he also cuts her off when he goes on a really long tangent about his crush, right? But she wanted to hear about his crush. And, mm-hmm. you know, when he, he, when he like says he hates California and she didn't listen to him, mm-hmm. like with a lot of empathy, right? She says, yeah, I didn't, right? I think that she's a really good single mom character too. Yeah, Especially the date scene, because the date scene is great. Because like I was mentioning, or we mentioned earlier, the ability to jumpstart your car with, with the stick shift, right? is shown in the beginning and it comes in with, uh, it's supposed to be judgmental, right? Where she's in front of uh, uh, Daniel's love interest parent, uh, parent's house, right? And they live in the rich part of Encino. 
and her car stalls, right? And they have to jump it just like when they were kids. Uh, but she makes it like fun, right? She plays it up. And like, obviously, Daniel's love interest isn't really embarrassed by it. Daniel is understandable, right? Get that. Uh, but the way she does it and like the way she like swings the situation again, like you said, it's, uh, it works with like her trying to do like the best she can with what she's got. Yes, yes. So for a small role, I think very, very fleshed out. So on that note, let's jump over to Letterboxd, where this also did whoppingly well. Um, it's odd because the ratings are are tough on Letterboxd, but it has a 3.7 out of 5, but all the top ones as well are 4 and 5 stars. Um, so I'm going to start off with a few that are all really short, hot takes, um, but they're all really insightful and funny and bringing up stuff we didn't yet touch upon. So first of all, Graham gave it four and a half stars and Graham wrote, it still shocks me to this day that Ralph Macchio was in his early twenties during the production of this film. That is really hard to believe. Oh, I, 20? I, yeah. No way. Yeah. He looks like he's like a 15 year old freshman in this. Yeah. That's crazy. That is crazy. Such a perfect casting for that reason too, right? Cause you want the more mature actor that looks the age. So I thought that was fantastic. Um, and then I, I really thought this one gave me a chuckle. Jesse four stars wrote just goes to show that with the right teacher, it only takes two months of training to win a karate tournament. And I'm just going to say, Jesse, it just goes to show you don't watch enough sports movies because <laughs> it's very common. Yeah. <laughs> very, very common. And second, it's not true. He starts off the movie karate kicking the, the gate to his apartment complex. He already has interest and knowledge yeah. of Karate Kid. He's not a novice. Yeah, it's, it's not like a like Ray situation from Star Wars. Like he reads books yeah. about karate. Mm-hmm. He's learned at the Y, like he says. It's not like he's got like the Cobra Kai dojo, but like, you know, he learned what he did. He tried to use it and he beat, he like Mr. Exit, you encountered a superior opponent. Now you have to learn some more if you're going to go fight this guy. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the trajectory of any any competition. I mean, like fighting. Right. It's like you learn your little skills when you, with your boys you put on the street. Then you get into the, the recreational league and the people you've never seen before have something you've never seen. They beat you with it. And then you got to learn how to do it or defend it. Right. And that, that's one of the, the nice things about that. Right. It's like like you said, the, the Miyagi method uh, covers that. It's about balance. He, he's very Thanosy. He's all about balance. Right. Not, not not genocidal, but he's all about, you know, balance in the terms of not just like fighting and your style. But also like balance in life, which I actually appreciate. Like again, like you're talking about like, a very good coach, uh, understanding like the social aspects of happiness and like what people would call now like self-care, I guess, right? I love that. Yeah, I love the Thanos comparison, even though very different, right? <laughs> about equilibrium, about finding harmony, right? An inner harmony <clears throat> with the self. And it's lovely, right? That they have like a psychic dimension here that, that normally isn't touched upon as well, right? It's kind of also a meeting of the West and the East, right? Cobra Kai is the West and, you know, Miyagi-Do, you know, his approach is more of an Eastern approach, right? Um, you could say that's a loaded <laughs> take that reminds me of like YouTube videos that try to like say that Ghostbusters is a, a parable of the Cold War, for example, or stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to go on that ledge right now. So anyways, what did you find on Letterboxd? <laughs> This is funny. Johnny Lawrence was the Logan Paul of the 1980s. I, I find that great. Like, that's a very topical and relevant comparison. Uh, I, I feel like, again, the, the blonde, blonde dude look is, is a good topical, but that, that just that had me cracking up when I came across that one. That's perfect. Um, um, other than that, um, I guess there's not a whole lot of great ones. On Actually, I had one other one. It's a short one. Uh, this comes from Katie, who gave it 
four and a half stars, not quite the five stars, but she says, I too would slow dance with Ralph Macchio in his shower curtain costume, heart with an arrow, which shows that that costume still works in as of 2020. I don't know if it works in 2022, but I think you might still be able to get away with that costume, Paul. And more importantly, if you don't and you young viewers out there are looking for a costume for your dance, I suggest Invisible Boy Shower Curtain one. It was the uh, ultimate. It was the ultimate pickup movie. You guys need to watch this movie. Just pay attention to what Ralph Macchio is doing with the pickup moves. Yeah, I think this has like six or seven costumes. You can go with a group of friends. You oh. know, someone can do. Yeah. No, no. This is but all the movies we've watched with like the suave Lothario characters. Like this might be the best one. Like you say, he's he's twenty, but he's playing a fifty year old. But he's better than Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Jerry Maguire was a boss. Like I'm just gonna throw that out there. Like this is a young boy from Reseda with nothing but you know aspirations and a shower curtain. He's making it happen. I respect that. I, I respect it too. And, you know, he ends up with the coolest ride, this old vintage ride, because, yeah. you know, he puts in the hard work. He makes the right connections, right? Hmm. How though, this is totally off topic and in a weird spot at the end, but I have to ask. Throw it out there. How does Mr. Miyagi have all those cars? That's what like, I'm saying. Got oil money. Okay. I'm telling you, that oil rig is his. No one's listening, but like, I feel like there's a, a watchman trace here. I'm throwing it out there like, he used like reparation money to get like the oil land. And then he's like, he's a hard worker. So he's doing the side maintenance thing as a gig. Cause he, he has a way nicer house than most maintenance people, but he's also frugal. Like you said, he's all about doing things himself. And like, so there's also the other possibility, even without my crazy ass hypothesis about Manzanar and all that shit, like that he just, you know, he's a frugal dude who works really hard and saves his money and, you know, buys shit and restores it is the other thing is, you know, is kind of in that. Cause he's a very like practical man. And he seems to be skilled in all aspects of, you know, automotive care, you know, general like uh, home improvements and all that stuff. Like I said, it's a pretty flexible thesis with given what we know about him. It is. I think that we need to join the writing team for Cobra Kai season five and to sort of dig into this alternative thesis of all. Oh, yeah. We're going to have like a, a lawyer shows up and they're like, Miyagi owned all this land and all this money. <laughs> and, he, he, and Daniel, you're entitled to it, but you must fight Johnny. It's in his estate. It's in his will. He said... Whoever fights in the Kumite can get it. That's when John Claude Van Damme shows up, and that's when shit gets real. That's my version without seeing Cobra Kai of season three or four, whatever they're on. That's where I'd go with it. Yeah, my only thing to add there, too, is that Emilio Estevez is going to play the lawyer. <laughs> oh, my God. That'd be better. But he plays it in his role from Outsiders, so it connects to Tony Boy. To Pony Boy. He's actually, like, the character from Outsiders, but Let's as say, a lawyer. The craziest multiverse. But yeah. then also somehow is... Gordon Bombay when he transports and so that we're going to have a there's some weird connection here between like hockey and karate going on and soccer so it's going to end up like a a multiverse with uh, the Mighty Ducks and Karate Kid and the Big Green together. I don't know we're going to work on it so next next episode we're doing Cobra Kai. Got it I got it what happens is Rick Moranis comes but he's not the guy from Little Giants he's from Honey I Shrunk the Kids He's like our Aunt May. He's like, I'm in the quantum universe. And that's when shit gets crazy in our multiverse. And our multiverse just exists in the 80s in all the universes. There's no other fucking centuries, just the 80s. I love it. And so, yeah, he gets really small, like in uh, Wreck-It Ralph style, right? And he enters into the electrical network of the Blockbuster store and ends up in all the different film universes and, you know, has to beat every bad team, right? Like a sort of amalgamation of you know all the uh, 80s bullies mm-hmm. yeah. combined into one giant chad with the, like the biggest spiked hair and like blonde thing going on and well, then they have a snowboard challenge on top of a mountain 
Yeah, I mean, he has to play the Knights, right? He has to play the Icelandic, <laughs> you know, assholes from Mighty Ducks 2. You know, he has to play the Hawks, but all together in one Frankenstein smorgasbord. So <laughs> stay tuned. Next Get time. Cobra yeah. Kai season five. <laughs> there we go. We're going to run the table. And by the end, we're going to have a bigger, more sprawling cinematic universe than Marvel. They got nothing but more cohesive than DC, so it'll make sense. And more zany than Space Jam 2 <laughs> with even more product placement. So get that. <laughs> the words out of my mouth. It doesn't work without the product placement. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's going to be a ton of that. A ton of that. LeBron doesn't have nothing on us. <laughs>